0: Well, if you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to continue to look at what we started to look at two weeks ago. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 7, mainly 6 and 7, because we looked at the beginning of that two weeks ago. And two weeks ago, we asked, why Christmas? Why Christmas? And we answered uh, by allowing the prophet Isaiah to tell us, uh, that to us, a child is born, to us, a son is giving. That really is the answer to why Christmas. In other words, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because of the incarnation. God taking on human flesh and being born among us to be the savior of the world that he created is why we celebrate Christmas. And this week, I want to continue to look at these incarnational implications of Christ's coming. He took on human flesh, the incarnation. What does that actually mean? Well, Christmas means, yes, we should have an increased joy. We looked at that that last uh, last time. Uh, Feasting at the light, dispersing the darkness, yes, and our Savior, removing the burden of sin from the world. But what does that actually look like, practically? Like, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in our society? Are there any cultural implications to Jesus coming in the flesh? Is the incarnation only significant around December or even just on one day of December? What does it mean for the rest of the year? What impact does the incarnation really have on the world? And we're going to answer that again by looking back to Isaiah chapter 9 to see the prophesied Christmas miracle and what that means for us. Isaiah 9, we're going to read verses 2 through 7 this morning. These are the words of God. And as such, let's give attention to them. Isaiah writes, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, we have read your word and we ask that the same Holy Spirit that inspired this prophecy thousands of years ago would come alive to us today. Your word is living and active and we pray that that same Holy Spirit that inspired these words would now inspire us. Those of us who have been filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that same spirit resides in us. And I pray that we would see the clear meaning of this text today. We pray that we would be changed by it. We pray that we would sit at your feet as as you are a great king, that we would allow you to, to rule and reign on our hearts today to shape us and mold us to be drawn closer to you as our king, but also to know how to live in the kingdom that you have established. We pray these things in Jesus name and amen. Did you catch that? And the end or and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government. Of the increase of his government there will be no end. Who would have thought that a Christmas sermon would have anything to do with the government? Isn't Christmas the one time of year where we all lay down our arms in the name of Christmas spirit? Don't talk about the government. So, yes, in a sense, This is the one time of year where we don't have to talk about the government as much, but probably not in the way that you're thinking about it. We want to cease fire at Christmas to give us momentary peace, don't we? Just just for one day. No red or blue on Christmas, just red and white. Candy canes and Christmas robes, right? Santa's red and white robe. Let's, Let's just not fight one day. So just one day we can have peace. But let me ask you something, church. Why are we satisfied with only one day of peace every year when Isaiah says in verse seven in our text, the Christ, who is named Prince of Peace, will bring peace that has no end. The the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, it says. Now, I know many people think that Christmas is too over the top already. I've heard even Christians say this. But what I think is that Christmas season isn't even going far enough. I think we need to push it out further. Everyone always talks about how Christmas grows every year. People are putting up Christmas lights before it's even Thanksgiving. Radios are playing Christmas music before it's even December, aren't they? And it's almost like the increase of this Christmas government has no end. It just keeps growing and growing. Let me just cut to the Chase Church and tell you what this sermon is about. Christmas isn't just about God becoming man. It is about that and taking on human flesh only to pay for our sins and then scoot back up to heaven. That's really what our Christmas sermons essentially end up being a lot of the times. Jesus came here to pay for our sins and now he's gone forever. Right. That's a lot of times what we start to think of when we think of Christmas. It's about him coming to reign, though, and to establish a kingdom. That's what the Christmas story is about. This kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish, the kingdom that has no end, the kingdom of God that looks like heaven on earth, on earth as it is in heaven, as we just prayed a moment ago. Do you know what happened when the angel came to tell the shepherds that Christ was to be born? Do you remember the story? A multitude of heavenly hosts broke out praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth, (coughs) not in heaven, peace on earth and goodwill towards men, the people that you see every day. Peace here now on earth. Do you know why King Herod was so scared that Isaiah's prophecy was becoming true? Do you know why he frantically searched to find this son given who was to be the king of the Jews? Do you know why he demanded that all of the baby boys under two years old be murdered to ensure that this son would be killed? Do you know why? Because he might have believed the prophets more than you do even. Think about that. Matthew says, he consulted the chief priests and the scribes about what the scripture says regarding this king. He really wanted to know what the implications of Jesus' coming would be. It says that they quoted to him Jeremiah that says, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, mark that in your mind, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, your, or from you shall come a ruler, think government, who shall shepherd my people Israel. I think about that, a ruler, think government, think kingship, think kingdom. Okay? Do you know where Herod was king at the time? Judah. He was the king in Judah. He was given authority under the Roman Empire to have a semi-independent nation within their kingdom. There was the Roman Empire, and then they let the Jews have this little sect uh, to where they could have their little semi-independent kingdom where Herod was rule, would rule as king. He was the present king of the Jews. Wasn't he? he wasn't of the line of David, but he was the king of the Jews at that time. But the most threatening thing to Herod's kingdom, to his government, was that a son was given. A child was the most threatening thing to Herod's government at the time. A child that was to be born was to be a new prince of peace. And that threatened his kingdom. Now, I realize that may be a little bit insulting to you to say that Herod, the baby murderer, believed the scriptures more than you do, right? It hurts when we say something like that. But here's my point. Herod took radical action in light of the coming kingdom of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus. This was, an inca- this was as incarnational as it gets when it comes to implications. right? When, when Herod thinks of what do I do in light of Jesus coming in the flesh— He takes radical action. Jesus being born was a threat to his culture, to his government, to his earthly rule. This wasn't just some spiritual thing. He knew it was going to hit close to home. He did not think that Jesus being born was just some invisible kingdom that had no earthly implications. He knew if he did not get rid of Jesus, this would change on earth as it is in heaven things were going to change. It would not ever be the same because Jesus was going to come. Why? Because he believed the scriptures. He believed that the zeal of the Lord would do this. So how does the kingship of Jesus change, and I mean radically change, your behavior, the things that you do? In light of the incarnation, how does that actually change anything in your life? How does the kingship of Jesus radically change your politics, who your allegiances are, Two, your your, your views on government in the world, the way that government works in light of Jesus being king. Does Jesus being king make any difference to you in your life at all? Think about that. He is your king. Does that matter? Does it matter at all to you? You see, for far too long, we have over-spiritualized the kingdom of God. It's the same Gnostic heresies about the material world that have led us uh, to this apathy regarding the world we live in where we just don't really care. We just kind of want to get out of here, don't we? We want to live our lives and then maybe Jesus will just zip us out of here one day. We don't believe the Lord will actually answer our prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't believe that. And if we do believe it, we believe that it's some future thing way off in the future. It's not going to be to us in our lifetime. We don't believe that the kingdom of God is already in our midst, as Luke's gospel tells us, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees. And they say, what's it going to look like? And Jesus says, it's already here. It's in your midst. We don't believe the parables that tell us uh, that it starts out like a mustard seed, really, really small. In ways that you almost can't even notice and grows larger and larger and gets bigger and bigger. We don't believe the prophet Isaiah in verse 7 when he says, from this time forth, referring to the child being born, referring to the son giving, from this time forth and forevermore. We don't really believe that very often, do we? We think we do, we say we do, but does it actually make any difference in our lives? When it says, from this time forth and forevermore, it's talking about the birth of Jesus onward. From that time forth and forevermore, Jesus will increase his government as our king. The kingdom has already come, and for some reason, modern theologians have changed their theology uh, after the world wars as if they were the definitive proof that the kingdom hasn't come. We've had these big wars, so it can't be true. But think about this, even in the blood-filled trenches where the uniforms were soaked in red, there was a Christmas truce. Think about that. Think about that. The world, the entire world was at war, and the only thing that brought them peace, albeit for a day, was that the true Prince of Peace was king. And he was able to bring a stop to it, where they could say, you know what, all this aside, we're going to stop and remember our true king. Think about that. What if we had a bigger view of the kingship of Jesus? What would it look like? What if we took seriously these scriptures about the government government of Jesus, where he establishes and upholds it with justice and with righteousness? Think about that. A land flowing out with righteousness and justice, where we would come to him, our great king, as a wonderful counselor, maybe even in times of war. Right? What do we do? What does justice look like? What does it look like to fight against evil forces? What does a mighty God look like when we are going up against evil forces? As we just read in Isaiah, he is a mighty God against evil forces. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father who might preserve the nations that profess to be a nation under his rule. He is our Father. We come to him as a nation under God. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace who wars not with flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. He's at war with that. And someone might say, but you're taking this too far. It's just too much. The kingdom does not have earthly implications. It's spiritual. It's spiritual. And I would say to this, yes, it's spiritual, but it's also earthly, right? It's physical too. It's earthly because God isn't against flesh and blood. He's not against flesh and blood because he made flesh and blood. Think about that. He's not against your skin. He's not against your body. He's not against the world. He's the one that made it. And he even came in the flesh. And when he came in the flesh, that was the way that he defeated sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He isn't. Or he's against the, the spiritual powers that corrupt the physical world. Think about that. Let me say that again. He's against the spiritual powers that corrupt the good physical world. That's what he's saving the world from. Think of it. He's not saving us from the world. He's saving the world from us and our sin and our problems. He's ruling and reigning now to redeem all things. He's calling his church to be co-laborers in this endeavor with him, to renew the world with him, to be co-laborers in this kingdom that he's called us to. Now, people have come to think that this kingdom will start at the end When Jesus returns, but they haven't read the scriptures very closely. If you you look at this, we know it starts at the incarnation. We just read that, right? The kingdom comes when he says from this time forth at the incarnation when he comes. But where does it end? Okay. In one sense, we can say, well, it never ends. It's forevermore. But there is a sense in which it ends here on earth. And first Corinthians actually gives us an answer that we know where it starts. Where does it end? First Corinthians 15, 24 through 27 says this. Then comes the end. Okay, so it's pretty clear. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the father, after destroying every rule. So there's other rulers out there during this kingdom after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he's put his all his enemies under his feet. So he's reigning and ruling against all the enemies in the world. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is the last enemy. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Referring to Jesus. Jesus is putting all things under his feet. So let me sum that scripture up for you. The end will come. We might say the consummation of the kingdom might come when Jesus delivers his already inaugurated kingdom to the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power, those who are against his kingship here on earth now. For he must reign until he's put his enemies under his feet. So he's working right now to put those enemies who are against him under his feet and the last enemy is to be the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's when he's done with it all, when he's finished his work as the great king. Now, look around a month after Christmas and you'll realize that there's still a lot of increase of his government needed, right? When we start to get a little bit away from the Christmas season, politics start to ramp back up. Everyone kind of goes back into that season, and you start thinking in a different frame than you do through the Christmas season. But if you're wondering what it looks like to have the government always upon Christ's shoulders, that the government uh, where he's increasing it constantly, the, the increase of his government and peace having no end, where do you look? Christmas. Christmas is actually a very good picture of what it looks like for Jesus to have implications all around the world. Where his kingship is actually making a difference in the things that we do in our lives every day. The boots on the ground kind of stuff. Christmas is the one day of the year where the world can come together to have peace in the name of Christ. Christmas. Christ. We all confess it. It's the one day of the year where families learn to lay down uh, their arms to bow their knee to a higher purpose. We're not going to fight today. Prince of Peace is here. We're going to come to him. It's the one day of the year that causes warring nations on both sides. Think about that. On both sides to lay down their literal arms. They're shooting and killing each other. And they lay down their arms to admit that Christ's wondrous love is more powerful than hatred of their brother. It's chilling if you think about it. That's the power of Christ in his government. It has real implications. It's the one month where the world uh, plays secular, or the secular radios in the world play hymns like Joy to the World with lines like, Let Earth Receive Her King. Where everyone's singing it. Let Earth Receive Her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. And heaven and nature sing. All of it. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. Everyone rejoice. Jesus is king. He rules the uh, the world with truth and grace. We sing it every year And, and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. You can hear it where people are just singing this. And even the most raging of atheists can't help but hum along to the tune of Jesus being king. It's funny, it's, it's literally comical that Jesus' reign will cause even the people that want to spit in his face, they're so addicted to the beauty of Christmas because it's Christ's righteousness, it's justice, it's something that can't be denied, it's irresistible in many ways. People want to worship Jesus because he's worthy of being worshipped. And those short but cosmically powerful moments is when we start to get a glimpse of what the coming kingdom and the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth, as it says in Habakkuk 2, what it really looks like. It looks like Christmas. On that day when Christ's kingdom is finally culminated, when the mustard seed that starts out really small becomes a massive tree for the birds of the air to rest in, when the world is at such peace that we bend our swords into plowshares, Remember that Old Testament prophecy? We bend our swords into plowshares. In that day, the Lord will return, and we will all readily bow down to worship him as our long-awaited king. Because by that time, every rule and every authority has been put under his feet. We're ready for Jesus to come back. We are welcoming him, saying, yes, this is actually a kingdom. This is a government that we want. And that's the way that Jesus rules and reigns. That day where every day is like Christmas. When the people who once walked in darkness have their streets lit, not with Christmas lights, but with the glory of Jesus as he comes as their great king, lighting up the kingdom, lighting up the people. That's the kingdom that we look forward to. That's the joy that we look forward to. This church is what Christmas is about. It's about celebrating the incarnation of of God and our response—it's increased joy. Yes, we talked about that last week. But also leaning into the implications, the practical implications of the incarnation, how it actually propels us to have a real change in our lives. Christ came in the flesh to redeem all things and to put them into subjection to Him. That's all things, including your life, your sins, the things where you're in rebellion right now. He came to go against those, to war against those, and to bring peace, not just in the world, but even in your life. That's what it means to come to Jesus as our great king. So our response uh, to this is living faithful lives in his kingdom like every day is Christmas. That's, That's really the way that we should respond to Jesus being king. What if we were filled with the same spirit that causes all these things... In the middle of June. Think about that. When it's hot outside, when everyone's fighting in July and everything's just uh, we're aggravated. What if we were filled with that same spirit then to actually live like we do in Christmas? What if we actually believed that the zeal of the Lord would do this? As it says in verse seven, because he says he's going to do it. It's not a matter of whether or not he's going to do it. It's whether or not we're going to believe that he is going to do it. And that will actually have a change in our own lives. What if we really changed our behavior like Herod only in subjection to Jesus instead of rebellion? Where we had those tangible, incarnational, practical implications to the incarnation. But it wasn't against Jesus where we're trying to kill him, but where we're bowing our knee to him. Where we're ready to welcome this king. Where we're coming to adore him. Coming to worship him as our cream. As our king, what if Christmas spirit isn't just an empty phrase and is actually just referring to the Holy Spirit? Think about that. What if it's actually referring to the Holy Spirit who bears actual fruit, who has actual earthly implications? Church, I titled this sermon series Christmas in the Flesh. Because I want you to see that the kingdom of God is tangible and practical. And it should change your life. So let's keep with the Christmas spirit by inviting our king to be Lord over all. Not just our theology, not just our minds, but our actions. The way that we live before a holy God. Over our homes, over our culture, over our church, over our nation. All things being brought into subjection to our great king, Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are a people who need a king. We need to be ruled. We need someone in charge over us. We need someone to be an authority over our lives because we so often run away in rebellion uh, to the good that you've created. Lord, you've told us what's good. You've showed us the way. You've given us your law. But your word says that what the law couldn't do, weakened by the flesh, your son Jesus has done for us. Our great king has done the work that we could never do. So Lord, we pray that we would come to him today in faith, that he might energize and give us a virility to be able to live out the gospel with practical, tangible implications. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.